All right. Did you leave me a bulletin here, Jimmy? Who did? Hey, thanks, Heather. Man, you need a raise. <laughs> All right, well, good morning. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John this morning, and we are in chapter 4, so if you want to get your Bible and turn there. John chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 26 this morning. And uh, next week, actually, next week we will finish this text out. Uh, and normally we alternate between Gospel of John and Isaiah, but we're going to go through, um, probably all the way through chapter 4. So we're going to start it this week, and we're going to finish it out next week. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John two weeks in a row. Okay, so we're going to look at the text this morning. I'd like to go ahead and read that text, and we'll see what the Word of God is saying to us and uh, how it may apply. So let's read that together. John 4, 1 through 26. And it says, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and parted again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well to drink from himself, as, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give in him will be a spring of, uh, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, and when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Okay, so here we have a story of Jesus. Now, it's very obvious, I think, right from the beginning, that you can see the full picture of Jesus in this story. He is, he is a humble man, but he is also God in the flesh, right? Uh, the things that happen in this story are things that only happen by divine revelation, and, but also things that happen in this story only happen because he's a man. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. We see that when he's wearied as he comes. He's walked some 20 miles or so from the 
area of Judea to the area of Samaria, a small town called Sychar. Now, first of all, before we get to the details of that, it says that Jesus, when he learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself wasn't baptizing, but only his disciples, he departed from Judea and went up to Galilee. Okay, so remember back in chapter 1, when John the Baptist was approached by some Jews questioning him about his ministry and his baptism. You remember that? It says, The testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Basically, who are you and what are you doing and what right do you have to be baptizing people? John 1, 24 and 25. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And so the Pharisees then hear that Jesus is actually baptizing more than John ever baptized. And now, of course, they want to come and question Jesus. So Jesus, kind of not wanting to be questioned by the Pharisees because it wasn't time for that, because they were directly going to ask him, are you the Christ? And he wasn't prepared for that situation yet, because when that comes, when John chapter 7, the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him once it became public knowledge. So it wasn't time for that yet. Jesus didn't reveal himself in such a way yet. So not wanting to have that confrontation with the Pharisees yet, he leaves that area and he goes up to Galilee. That's the situation. Okay, so let's look at where he traveled. I have a couple maps I'm going to show you on the screen. This is the same map I've been using for, uh, for John. If you can see it, I know it might be hard to see, but you do have map maps in the back of your Bible. The three yellow areas are the three regions that we're talking about. We're talking about Judea, we're talking about Samaria, and then Galilee up in the north. Now, Jesus was in the area of Judea, which is the, the, the circle there in the south, and he's leaving, and there are two different routes that Jesus could have traveled to get from uh, Judea up to Galilee. Now, the first route is here. It's a little green line that I drew, if you can see it. Notice that it doesn't go through Samaria. This was the route that was most commonly traveled. It was right along the Jordan River. There's a little road that splits right in Jerusalem. One goes up, kind of follows the Jordan River, as that does, and then the other one is this, it goes basically straight north. See that? Straight line north. Now, which one would we travel? We would travel the one that's a straight shot up to where we're going, right? But that is not the road that was most commonly taken. The road that was most commonly taken was the first one that traveled up through the Jordan, uh, up beside the Jordan River. Why is that? Because the Jews wanted to avoid Samaria at all costs. And we'll get to why in just a moment. That may be something you already know. But we see a little town right on the road, directly from the area the Judea up to Galilee, right on that road, they hit smack dab in this little town called Sychar. And this is where Jesus was. Now, in the text, it says, he left, he, in verse 4, it says, he had to pass through Samaria. You see that in verse 4? Now, at an initial reading, we'd say, no, he didn't. He actually didn't have to pass through Sychar. He could have taken a different way. He didn't have to. But the little phrase here used is very specific. It basically is a divine must. That is, there was no other option for him according to the plan of God. He had to do it. It's used in uh, John 3.14. As, the son, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Must, had to, same phrase right there. It must happen 
because this is the definite plan of God. Okay, there's no other option. Now, there is another physical option, and Jesus didn't have to be, of course, physically, right? But according to divine intention and planning, this is what must happen. Okay, so Jesus needed to go this route. He needed to land in the town of Sychar, and here's what happens, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Of course, daytime starts uh, at sunup, but generally speaking, 6 a.m., so the sixth hour, it was noon, and it's hot. And Jesus has been walking, and so he's wearied. He needs a drink. He sits down by the well, and of course, his disciples had moved on to the town. He was there by himself, as though it appears, until a woman by herself comes up to the well. Now, it was a three-day walk all the way up to Galilee, and they are about, as you can see from that map, they're about halfway or so. Now, drawing water from a well. Most of us in this room, I don't think, practice that anymore. I don't know. Um, I don't regularly go to a well, lower down a bucket, and uh, get some water and pull the bucket back up, and that's how we get our water. I don't do that. You may. It's okay if you do. But many of us don't practice that today. But this, historically, was work for women in that they used water throughout the day for the many things that they did, and it was their job to go and get the water and bring it back to where they needed it. And so the women would go in groups to go do this task, and they generally would go in the early morning or late at night. Why? Because it was cooler. And they were doing a lot of work. Okay, doing this required a lot of work. Okay, nothing was electric. Okay, gas powered. All right, they were doing everything by hand. And so they would go when it was cool. So a question we need to ask, so why was this woman there at noon by herself? And we'll answer that here in just a minute. She asked the question. Jesus asked for a drink of water and she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Now, here's the deal with Jews and Samaritans, okay? If you knew this in the past, it's just a refresher. The Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. Uh, here's why. When the Assyrians came, and we're reading about this in the book of Isaiah, actually, but when the Assyrians came, they defeated the northern kingdom, and they took them over completely. Remember, it was divided, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom comes to be defeated by the Babylonians later on. But right now, the northern kingdom is defeated by the Assyrians, and here's what they do. They take part of the, of the Jewish people, and they deport them to another area. But they leave some of them there in Samaria. Remember, Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And so they left some of the Jews there, and they brought in purposefully other people from other nations and they married with them, and they created basically a mixed race. This is, this is what happened. And so since they were a mixed race, those of the southern kingdom said, you're unclean. We don't like you. All right? But also when they came in and they mixed race, you know what they also did is they mixed religions too. So they had a time where they departed from God. But Babylonian captivity happens, right? And then after that, they are released, and they go back to their... Uh, place where they live. So some of them go back to the northern kingdom. That's where they're from. Some of them go to the southern kingdom. Well, we know those in the southern kingdom started building the new temple, right? So the Samaritans in the north, northern kingdom, they said, hey, we learned that you're building a temple. We'd like to come help. 
And those of the southern kingdom said, we don't want your help because you're dirty. And they said, well, fine, then. We'll build our own. And so they did. And later on in history, during the intertestamental period, you know, just those 400 years or so uh, before, the, the, uh, before the birth of Christ, um, the southern kingdom actually went and destroyed their temple. And so uh, they don't like each other, okay? Jews and Samaritans do not like each other. There is a big deal about that. And Jews basically think Samaritans are unclean. Samaritans think that Jews are real mean and got a lot of things wrong. Okay, So there's a bitter rivalry. So now we see why the Jews say, I'm not going through Samaria, dirty country. I'm going a different, I'm going to go around. And so that's why they did. But Jesus had a different plan, didn't he? Jesus went right into the heart of it on purpose because he must. He must, and that was God's plan. That was his intention. In fact, I, I pulled this out because I, I think it's kind of funny. In John chapter 8, Jesus says something to the Jews that offends them. In John 8, 47, he says, Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason you do not hear is because you are not of God. Now, that's a pretty big insult to a Jewish person, wouldn't you say? Jesus is saying, I, I, I'm speaking to you, but you don't hear me. Now, the reason you don't hear me is because you are not of God. What an insult. So, they hurl an insult right back, and here's the best thing they can come up with. Are you ready? The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? And they said, ooh, got him. You know, I, that's, that's the best they got, you know. Uh, he's a Samaritan, he has a demon. But to them, man, defiled, not a God follower, intermixed. You're not, you don't have the right religion because the, the Samaritans, um, they saw only the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, as, as their scriptures and not the rest. And so... They said that we will worship God on Mount Gerizim, which is right near this little town of Sychar, and that's where they worshipped. But the Jews said, no, Jerusalem is where we were to worship. So that's why she has this case later on. You know, we say this mountain, you say Jerusalem, who's right? It's because they're, they have two different views of who God is and how he's to be worshipped. And that's important for the whole story. Two different views of who God is and how he's to be worshipped. And Jesus comes right into the center of it. And we'll see how he uh, goes about the business of making that right. Okay, so let's continue on. So she says, how is it? How is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan? Not only am I Samaritan, I'm a woman. So there's two big things that she says, how can it be? Number one, how can it be that you would speak to me? So it was believed that all the women of the Samaritans were continually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. Now, women were considered to be unclean at particular times of the year, and so, but for them, they saw them as perpetually unclean, ceremonial unclean, and so they didn't touch them, they didn't go near them, they didn't talk to them, okay, all of them. So how can you talk to me? In fact, rabbis um, were not allowed to speak to women in public, they were not allowed to speak to even their own wives in public. And in fact, they were not allowed to speak to an immoral woman at all. And so rabbis began the custom of whenever they saw a woman in public, they would just close their eyes. <laughs> they would close their eyes and they would just walk until they were, they were free of wherever they were. Um, but that's how deep this goes. And so here we have, what, a Jewish rabbi saying to a Samaritan woman. This is the depth that Jesus goes here. He is breaking cultural boundaries here customs. 
Those didn't matter to Jesus. There was a different heart matter uh, at play here. So he says, he spoke to her, first of all. How can, how can he speak to me? And then second, he asked her for a drink. Now that's significant too. You see in your text, in uh, verse 9, it says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, Samaria, a woman of Samaria? And then in parentheses, because this is John's note, it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the words here are very interesting because it, in dealings there, what it really, literally means is Jews do not use the same utensils as Samaritans. Or they don't use the same dishes as Samaritans. The NET Bible says the Jews use nothing in common with the Samaritans. That's how it translates it. So what he's saying is you ask me for a drink out of my bucket and my cup, you can't do that. Everything I have is unclean. We don't share anything in common. Okay, so that was the second thing that amazed her. Here's something I want to say. This is in your notes uh, before we continue on. Just a couple observations here about the text until we get to the main point. And the first is this, is that the gospel, the gospel is not bound by ethnicity, by social class or status, or by gender. And we see Jesus breaking all of these right here to bring the gospel to this woman. It doesn't matter where you're from, color your skin is. It doesn't matter that you're a woman, right? It doesn't matter your standing in society. And in fact, Paul reiterates this, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Listen to what he says. There is neither Jew nor Greek, two opposites. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We have the three right there. Jew or Greek, what do we have there? Ethnicity. Slave or free, social standing. Male and female, gender. It doesn't matter. But the gospel comes to all. It is not bound by how much money you make, your social standing, whether you're male or female, what color your skin is. The gospel is not bound by those things. And for anyone who does bind the gospel by those things, is wrong. Is wrong. So let's move on here. Verse 10. So Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us a well... Um, and he drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. And he said, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But everyone who drinks from the water I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now that sounds amazing. But in verse 15, here's what she says. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw water again. Now, she doesn't get it, does she? Obviously. She doesn't get it. That Jesus is not talking about water here. He's talking about something different. But doesn't it seem obvious that he's not talking about water? Doesn't it seem just blatantly obvious? Let's look at Jacob's well for a second. Here's a, here's a picture of a church. This is the traditional site for, um, for Jacob's well. This is a Greek Orthodox church. Uh, of course, in the same location. It hasn't moved, right? Um, there, I, I tried to find, there are hardly, I mean, no disputes that inside this church that was built up around it uh, is the actual location of Jacob's well. 
And so here's what it looks like inside the building. Of course, it looks a little different than it used to. Okay, very elaborate. Um, but you can see there um, just a, a rectangular shape there in the middle. That's the well. And there's still, it's hard to tell in that picture, but there's still a winch system up there in, in a bucket, and it still has water in it. It's about 130 feet deep. Uh, pretty amazing. That's a good well, right? Uh, it still works. It's still got water in it. It's got fresh water because it's fed from a fresh spring. Now, she says this, this well, it's been here for a long time already, and it's still standing today, in fact. She says, now, our father Jacob, he, he dug this well. And it, and it took a long time. It was hard work, and it has water coming into it all the time. So you're telling me that you have better water than this? You don't even have a bucket or anything. How are you going to give me better water than this? He says, the water that I give will well up to eternal life. And so Jesus makes, makes that transition right there. It's very clear. He's not talking about water. He's talking about something else. And this is not new, but here's the catch, is that she wouldn't have been familiar with this wording. Why? Because what I'm about to read was not in her scriptures. This wasn't scripture to her. Here's, here's what I'm going to read from. I'm going to read from both Jeremiah and Isaiah. Now, for the Jews, this was scripture. But for the Samaritans, this was not. I wasn't familiar with it. Jeremiah 2, 13 and 14. That's not right. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves. They've broken the cisterns that cannot hold water. I'm not talking about water, right? Not talking about water but the thing that gives life. And they're seeking life in other places that doesn't give life. And that's the point. Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now this is the well that Jesus has dug. And he was offering a drink from the well of salvation. Another observation here. The gospel can only be known, how? By spiritual understanding. For those of us who understand the gospel, it's been revealed to us by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is communicating with us and, and helping us understand the things taught by God. In fact, again, Paul helps us to understand 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14. Listen to what it says. Now, this is about taking information from the world. And, and I can give you this information, but if you don't have the Spirit of God working in your life to help you understand this information, it will just be information that you understand on a surface. But you're going to continue to think we're talking about water when we're not talking about water at all. Right? So 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, that we might, here's, here's why we've received the spirit of God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We impart this in words not taught in human wisdom, or taught by, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are, they are spiritually discerned. That is, the things of God are spiritually discerned, they're not naturally discerned. So when he's talking about water here, and, but he's not really talking about water, he's talking about the salvation, and she says, I think you're still talking about water here. Um, there is a, some kind of roadblock here for her that she's not quite understanding the spiritual nature of their conversation. 
By the way, how many times does that happen to us, even though the Spirit of God is in us? And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God works in you, and you say, whoa, I actually get that now. I thought it used to be talking about this, but you know what? It's not talking about that at all. And God breaks through the barrier of your heart by His Spirit to help you understand the spiritual nature of things. We ask that God would do that right now. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, now, he, he's about to make a transition here because she doesn't understand. He's talking about spiritual things. So Jesus gives a nudge in a spiritual direction. And here's what he says. Go, call your husband and come here. Now, Jesus knew what he was doing when he said that. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. She says, what you have said is true. The woman uh, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. In other words, saying what you have just said is true. And uh, she doesn't deny that everything he just said is, is completely accurate. That's why she says, I perceive that you're a prophet because you know stuff you shouldn't know. So she has had five husbands, and the man that she is living with currently is not even her husband on any level. Here's what we need to say here. The gospel always, always, always deals with sin. There is no gospel without sin. That is to say, there is no good news without bad news. And the bad news is that we are sinners. So if we believe and we rejoice in a gospel that says everyone is good now, go ahead, do what you want to do, that is no gospel. The gospel always confronts our sin. And that is why in the church, we need to be able to confront sins biblically. Now, that doesn't happen a whole lot in churches today. We don't like confronting sins. It's awkward. It's weird. You don't do that in the rest of the world without saying, hey, that's just your opinion. Uh, some things are not left to opinion. Many things, in fact, are up to the Word of God, and it's up to the church to hold each other accountable to the Word and to God's standards. I want to encourage you to do that. It is awkward. There's, there is no denying that, right? But we should be the people who know God's standards and know His truth, spiritual matters that have been interpreted to us by the Spirit of God and His Word. We know that, we have that truth, but do we neglect it? Um... Second thing is this. The depth of a person's sin does not keep them beyond the reach of the gospel. What better encounter could have happened here with a woman who is a Samaritan and who is living an adulterous life? Go, let's go back to the question of this. Why was there a woman at the well in the middle of the day by herself when water was drawn in the morning or at night and in groups? Why? Because she was an outcast. She was an outcast woman by the community. She wasn't accepted. And there she was. And who did she meet? In the depth of her sin, Jesus himself. Jesus came to her. Jesus befriended her. Jesus didn't say you're dirty in one sense. Right? He is not beyond the reach she is not beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. I wonder if sometimes we think, for some, 
Ah, I've been guilty of this, so I can, I can have a hunch that some of you have thought this. There are just some people that I know in this world that I think, yeah, it's never going to happen for them. That's just, I just don't see how they could ever come to a realization of the gospel. They're just, they're just gone. Have you ever, have you ever thought that? It's been too long. Yeah, they're old now. You know? The God, there is no one too far gone for the gospel. No one. You are not too far gone for the gospel. No one you know is too far gone for the gospel. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses deeply. Remember what Paul said, 1 Timothy 1.15? The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. That means this is absolutely true. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. And that feels like me. You know, that, that feels like me so often. But in the depth of our sin and the conviction of our sin is where we see how great a Savior we have and the mercy and the compassion that He had on us. The gospel confronts and deals with sin, not just at your salvation, but every day of your life. Every day of your life. And it must, otherwise you don't have a gospel. If you don't recognize your sin, then what reason do you have for rejoicing in a great Savior? Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. Okay, so pause here. Now remember, the Samaritans said Mount Gerizim is the mountain. Actually, that's where Abraham built an altar, and so they said this is where we are to worship God. Now, when God made a promise about Jerusalem... Uh, they don't recognize that as scripture, so why is Jerusalem important to them? So there was this rift. We say Mount Gerizim is where it should be. You say Jerusalem is where it should be. Now, let me ask you, if you're you know, going to teach me about things, um, which place is the right place to worship? Almost sounds like a trap, doesn't it? Jesus, here's Jesus' answer. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. What does that mean? Salvation is from the Jews. That's an interesting little phrase there, isn't it? You worship what you don't know. Remember, this has to do with how they viewed God, how they understood Him, and, and, and how they came to the knowledge of God. They didn't have the full revelation of God up to that point. They had five books of the Bible. Great. But they had so much other that wasn't revealing about God's promise for the Messiah specifics about what he was doing with his people. They didn't have any of that. So the revelation of God is proceeding from what the Jews have. Revelation comes from the Jews. That is, there is something off about what you're doing here. The Jews have the word of God, the revelation that speaks to his promises. The fullness of God's revelation up to that point. Their worship was uninformed. They were worshiping what they didn't know. They, they thought that was right. Let's say this. Expressions of worship arise from the knowledge of the one being worshipped. Expressions of worship arise from the knowledge of the one being worshipped. 
That is, we worship our Creator in such a way that's reflective of who He is and who He has revealed Himself to be. If we add or take away from His Word, we're creating something that is not there. Our worship ought to be informed worship. Not just doing whatever it is we want to do, thinking that's okay to God. John, John MacArthur says it this way, The knowledge of the Word is the motive for true worship. We see how off people can be. Verse 23, now we're getting to the end of the text here. It's been building up to a certain point. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Guess what that word must is there? The same as had to. It's the same in the phrase. Must. There is no other option, but it is a divine must that we must. This is the way to worship. This is the God-ordained means of worship, truthfully, that is, spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called to Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. So basically she said, listen, prophet guy, that's great, you can tell what's going on in my life here, but let's just leave the teaching up to the Messiah, okay? Because she didn't like what she was hearing. Um, and unfortunately for her, or maybe fortunately, we don't know actually at this point, Jesus says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. So she says, oh, well, maybe re let me reevaluate what you just said, <laughs> I suppose, right? Now, if we're to understand worship in spirit and truth, we have to go back to what was just said. God is spirit, and therefore those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? I want to walk through this just, just briefly here. God is spirit. The worship of God is not limited in this context by location. That's, that's the obvious thing that he's saying here at first, right? It's not limited by location. The hour is coming and it's now here. When the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That is, not on this mountain and not in Jerusalem. He says that's not going to be the case. But the case is that they will worship in spirit and in truth. And that's where true worship will proceed from. Saying God is spirit, that is God, God is divine and God is not human. God is not a physical being in the sense that he is limited by one location. So you have to go to him where he is. But instead, what do we know happened by the Spirit of God? God came to us where we are. That's pretty amazing. No longer do we have to go to a particular physical location to worship. What does that mean practically? I told you my stories. Some of you have heard them, but we don't call this little area the sanctuary for a reason. Right? I don't know what we call it. We don't have a real name for it. But sanctuary is not a place, it is a person. For God dwells in us, in us. We don't need a building to worship. You know, Jane asked me, just the other day in the car, we were talking about uh, why someone might need to worship God. Now remember, Jane is seven years old. Why does someone need to worship God? She was asking me about baptism and things like that. She brought it up, by the way. I was listening to the radio, I'll be honest with you. And she asked me a question, I turned the radio off. And uh, we started talking. And uh, and she said, uh, do we have to have a building to have church? That's what she asked. Unprovoked, I promise. 
do we have to have a building to have church? I said, no, we don't have to have a building to have church. And uh, you know what? I think she really understood that the worship of God is not confined to a location. I said, we can have church, Jane. We can have church wherever we are, wherever we gather together because we worship God in our spirit who lives in us. We don't need a building. Many churches in this world don't have a building because the church is what? The church is the people, not the building. Now, we still say I'm going to church. Okay, this is the church building. Yeah, I know. We are the church because God's spirit lives in us. And so we worship him where we are. We worship him as we fall asleep at night. We worship him when we wake up, right? We worship him um, wherever we are. We worship God. Why? Because we worship in spirit and in truth. True worshipers. John 3, 5, and 6. Just reminding you of where John's come from in this argument. He's already talked about it some. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So we have been born of flesh. Yes. We all have a spirit. Yes. Yes, we do have a spirit in us, right? But the problem is that the spirit that lives in us naturally is dead. Every human has the breath of God in them. That's what gives life to their, to their physical body. But the spirit in us is dead in what sense? Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In what sense were we dead? Physically? Well, no. So then how? Spiritually. So we are alive, walking around physically, but we are dead spiritually. Therefore, we must be born spiritually. That is why we are born again, by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God enters us, and He gives life to our dead spirit. And so for the first time now, we are a spirit. We have the Spirit of God, and so we can worship God in spirit because it's alive. So we can commune with God's Spirit. Pretty amazing. Ephesians 4, 18-24. They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous. They give themselves up to sensuality, greed, and to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him, that you were taught in Him, and that the truth is in Jesus. To do what? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's, it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Okay, that's before. That's when our spirit was dead, and so everything we did was dead. But then it says, verse 23, But be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so there is a new self that we put on because we are alive in the spirit. Okay, so we can, we can say it this way, basically, that the dead spirit of a sinner is made alive only by the Holy Spirit of God. There is no way, there's no other way to be born again. There's no other way to give life. There is no other well that you can draw from that will spring up to eternal life. There is no other well. How do you access that well? well Jesus is the one who said, if you would ask me, I would give you a drink. Jesus is the only one who has a cup of water. Jesus is the only one who draws from the well for us and freely gives it to us. Jesus is the only access to the Father by the Spirit of God. Why does it say spirit and truth? 
I think just generally speaking, here's, here's two things that we can say. The spirit is, in other words, the intention of the heart. Jimmy read earlier from Psalm 51. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Does your spirit ever hurt? Drag you down? It's weary? Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, because these people draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. We worship God in spirit and the full intentions of the heart. So we have a spirit that's been born again to a living hope, right? We've been given life by the spirit of God. And now we can, for the first time, worship God, but we're urged to put off that old self with corrupted desires and put on the new self to be renewed in the spirit of our minds that we might serve God rightly. And we can do that by the Spirit of God. But those who don't have the Spirit of God are not able to do that. So we worship God in spirit, but we also worship God in truth. That is, in the invention of the mind. That is, what we consider. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Did you hear that? What is spiritual worship? What is true worship in spirit? What is that? to present your body as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God. So, okay, that's great. Now, what is acceptable to God? And it says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, the worship of God needs to be in spirit and truth. Any worship that is not done in truth is not done in spirit and is not worship. Any worship that is done in the spirit must also be done in the truth. If you do it in spirit and not in truth, then you're not actually worshiping in the spirit because the spirit is the spirit of truth, right? So Paul appeals to the people, by the mercy of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual worship. Be transformed in the renewal of your mind that you might worship God rightly because you can, because God has given life to your soul, to your spirit. We taste it now. We will have it in full one day. There's more to this story, and we're going to continue on with this story next week. Okay? The truth of this story goes farther. I hope that today... The things that we've drawn out would make an impact for you. We learn a great deal about the gospel when Jesus approaches this woman. I hope that you would see the truth that's in this story. I hope that you would see that what, God, what Jesus comes to break is rituals. He comes to go against the grain of the culture. He comes to say things are not about physical realities but about spiritual realities Focus on what is of the Spirit and truth. This is what God is seeking from you. This is what God is seeking from you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this story that we're able to read about Jesus and the woman at the well. And uh, God, we so 